Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, special guest host, Dr. Johnny Reese, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, we speak to the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all our exclusive unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteredonline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. So I've had quite a convoluted path to get where I am now. Um, I started out uh, with philosophy. Um, When I was a, a kid, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do something with books or something physical. Um... But I couldn't decide what. And I have, we have a good family friend who is working in politics and he studied philosophy. And so I asked him, how can it be that, you know, you study one thing, but you're doing another? And he said, well, philosophy is sort of a, a jack of all trades thing. It just teaches you arguments and thinking and so on. So I thought that was perfect for me. Um, so I started out doing that. And then I switched to experimental psychology. Uh, and eventually neuroscience. This was at um, University of Cambridge. And um, as part of that, I did, you have to do a bachelor's thesis. And I thought, what's a good way to combine these things? Um, And at the time, uh, a lot of professors, a lot of my fellow students were talking about, were using um, this new substance at the time called modafinil to, to, uh, to increase focus. And this is sort of similar to Ritalin and Adderall, but it works on a very different system. It works on the histamine system. So it doesn't have the same side effects that are associated with with Ritalin and Adderall. So the question at the time that people were asking is like, is this, um, if it's safe and effective, then why not kind of thing? So I did my bachelor's thesis on that and was very lucky to be invited to continue um, studying that topic uh, with with my advisor, Barbara Sahakian, uh, for, for a doctorate. Um, so I did that officially in psychiatry, but really in, in ethics of neuroscience, um, looking at what's called cognitive enhancement or pharmacological cognitive enhancement, using drugs to make the brain work better, uh, not for fun, but for work, and um, things related to, uh, to data access and electronic health records and consent, like when can researchers use your information uh, without asking you or when do they need to ask you if it's for a public benefit. So that was sort of my first time through the system. Um, after that, I worked as a junior academic um, for, for four and a half years at uh, the University of Copenhagen and at Harvard Medical School. And also here in Oxford, I say here because I'm now back for a second time through the system, um, this time studying international human rights law, and in particular, the right to enjoy the benefits of the progress of science and its applications, which no one's heard about, but which is you know super, super relevant to a lot of things today. Uh, and happy to talk more about that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so first off, that's uh, that's an extremely impressive background. And uh, one thing I wanted to just flag up is you've had all this success in academia, but you're not actually just an academic, right? You, you've done all sorts of other things. I was wondering if you could kind of tell me a little bit about those. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for bringing that up. So as I said in the start, um, I was always sure I wanted to do something with either books or activity. And 
that it, that was an oblique reference to the fact that I almost went uh, in the in the physical uh, direction, as I as I understand you did as well. So um, just the the joy of movement, um, and later I figured out, uh, found out that it's also very you know healthy for you, not only physically but also mentally. Um, but I just greatly enjoyed it. So um, I'm partly Danish and I'm partly German. Uh, mom's from Denmark, dad's from Germany, and in both those countries we had uh, the draft. Um, and we also have this thing in Denmark uh, called a folk high school, which is this really cool concept. I don't know. I know it's in the other Nordic countries, but I don't know about the rest of the world. But it's state subsidized. So you pay, I guess, what comes out to like a thousand pounds a month uh, for room and board and teaching. And it's not a traditional school. So you choose like a topic that you want to do, just one. And it can be anything. Uh, I did gymnastics. Uh, people do photography, film, Danish, arts, music, uh, anything. And it's a passion project. So you go and you get instruction for six hours a day in your chosen topic, but there's no exams. Uh, there's no any nothing. It's just you have to show up, but, uh, but otherwise it's all for you. What a, and, what a uh, great concept. Uh, yeah, right? I, I, I'm not aware of it in any other countries, but what a fantastic concept. It's amazing. And I mean, for anybody that's interested in this, like these things are open internationally. So uh, at the one I went to called Autoop, uh, there's one third Danish, one third the rest of the North and one third international. So we had people from Brazil, Costa Rica, America, everywhere. Wow. Yeah. So open to people, as you said, in the UK, the US, all, all that. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I just loved it because, I mean, it let me do what I wanted to do. Everything's taken care of for you. Um, you don't have to worry about food or, or socializing or anything like that. That's all programmed um, or, you know, the, the availability is there as much as you desire. But then you have access to these amazing teachers. In my case, there were, there were uh, Nordic champions. There were people that had competed at the European level. And, and uh, they're... You know, they're there to teach you and it doesn't matter who you are. So I never did gymnastics before going. I'd always wanted to, but I'm a, I'm a, like, I'm a tall, heavy set guy. No gymnastics club uh, would take me, um, especially at, at the time I was 17, right? So most people would say, forget about it. Um, but they, they, they take everyone, uh, me included. And, um, and it was fantastic. So, so there I had a taste of the advanced athlete lifestyle. Um, and then after that, I went to to the German army. So it's like it, Germany doesn't have the draft anymore. Uh, got rid of it in 2009 when I went. Um, but even then, you could get out of it if you really wanted to. Um, but I kind of wanted to try it because uh, it's, yeah, it had always fascinated me. Not so much the guns and shooting people, but the, the discipline and the physicality of it. Um, this idea that, you know, you need to be, you need to train for, be prepared for, pushing yourself to the limit um, physically and mentally, which converges to the same thing at some point. Um, and and it sort of struck me as being like an education in in discipline and in uh, mental fortitude, which is also exactly uh, what it was. Um, I had I had friends go there or or like. Um, people I know that went there and they hated it because they were forced to go. But if you want to do it, um, I can highly recommend it, at least the bootcamp parts. Uh, it's it's uh, really um, teaches you a lot about yourself. 
um, in a good way. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and if you can kind of maintain that discipline, because if you think so many people go off to university, right, and it's the first time they've kind of been free. And, and if you have that sort of background, uh, I mean, I think back to, to when I went to university, if I'd been a bit more, a bit more disciplined uh, and a bit more able to apply myself effectively uh, on a regular basis, then that's got to give you a huge advantage, uh, I would say. Definitely. There's a point in training where you're, um, you're dying, like subjectively you're done, like you were done 10 minutes ago, half an hour ago. But, uh, but, but you can't really stop, right? Because um, you just can't. You'll be shouted at in the extreme. You'll, you know, you'll be um, put on a stretcher and taken. Uh, like, so, you know, you, you got to do it. And, and you find out that that point where you thought you were done was only you were only a quarter way started. Uh, and that mentality or that insight um, is useful uh, in the rest of life. I don't advocate that people should you know, always be doing that, always pushing themselves like that. But it's good to know in case you need to that you can't. Absolutely. And, and having that confidence that there's more there to kind of draw on if, if absolutely necessary. I think that's, um, yeah, so that's an incredibly interesting and impressive background. So we've got the sort of academic, rigorous PhD background, and then we have all the, the military discipline, military type background, which will have an element of physicality. And then, as you said, the gymnastic stuff, which is incredible as well. As a former personal trainer, I wish I'd done more things with like gymnastic rings and that sort of thing that movement skill is incredibly important and I think I'm sure that set you up for for your training that I know you you still do so just to kind of segue into this um you have I think now people have learned a little bit about your background we can see that you know you've developed these these habits these routines that allow you to to perform at a very high level in several walks of life. So I was wondering if you could kind of give us a bit of insight into into those routines, into those habits that allow you to, you know, you're pursuing your second doctorate at the moment, you speak several languages. I think people would be very interested to find out, you know, how has this guy managed to do all of these impressive things? You know, what go, what do you do to, to get to that point to set yourself up for success? Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, I really like this topic. Actually, I should uh, put a disclaimer that I learned all of this from other people, but you know, I've sort of put it together in a way that that works for me. And there's different elements and habits that uh, people listening can put together in ways that that work for them. But each one of them is worth is worth trialing. So, what first got me thinking about this was Cal Newport's book um, Deep Work, and in that book he says. Um, there's a distraction epidemic. People rarely have time to themselves to have sustained work. We know from cognitive science that every interruption lingers. It's not like you check your phone and then you go straight back to where you were. No, it's something like 15 minutes of additional processing power in your brain still related to the message you saw and not to the task at hand. And he's like, look, um, obviously paraphrasing here, but he's like, look, what if we just got rid of all the distractions and we had a block of deep work that's however long and um and in that in that block you don't do anything else you have no emails you have no phone you're shut off from the world uh, as far as possible um so for me that's first thing in the morning i wake up and i i get up quite early but uh, but then i work from let's say six till ten or something like that and this the length of this block is important so 
There's another excellent book by uh, Mason Curie, I think, called uh, Daily Habits, I believe. And um, it looks at very creative people uh, in history, uh, not only artists, but scientists and philosophers like Charles Darwin, for example, is in there, Immanuel Kant. And he's like, what? how did these guys and girls structure their life, right? How did they do what they did? Some of these people have very voluminous output, but also were very active in, in diplomacy or in, um, in uh, politics or, or in other areas of life. And so how, how did they do this? And what he finds is that by far the majority of the people that he looks at, they have these blocks of three to four hours um, where they are very focused on their work. They're essentially doing uh, a Newport. And, um, and then either that's it completely and then they might do other things like they might give lectures or they might have correspondence or um, they might have people over and discuss things. So things that are related to work, but aren't the actual deep work. And in some cases, people would have one block in the morning and then one block in the afternoon, but never these very, very top performers, never would they work more than these maximally eight hours. And by far, the most would work only three or four hours a day. That that really made me think. Like I, I like having done work. I think a lot of stuff is is very interesting, but I never appreciated the grind. You know, I always thought there should be time for sports. Right? I still try to train an hour or two a day. Um, there should be time for people. This is the most important thing, uh, both for meaning and happiness, but also for health. Uh, it turns out, and it's kind of tough to fit all these things into into the into the one day. I have the luxury as an academic that I can structure in my own time, but many of these things will will carry over also um, because you can, if you have that one block and you're really dedicated, um, you can get your work done before you go into the office and then you can do other things there. You can network and you can be very present with your emails and, and so on and so forth. So basically the way my day looks is I'll, I'll get up just before 6, 5.30. I will... Um, some, often I'll have a coffee made from the night before, so it's cold, and I can uh, I can just drink it straight. Although uh, tea is better in the morning because you don't get the crash immediately. Um, and then I I sit in my bed and I work for three or four hours, and that's sort of my like my daily main tasks done. I always take the most important thing first. This is from a book called Kiss That Frog, I think. Or it's like whatever your most important thing in the day is, uh, whether it's work or, or something else, you just do that first because you have them, you know, you've just slept, you're, you're at your cognitive peak. Uh, I know this is different for some chronotypes, but for most people, it's like that. And then after those three, four hours, I will then go um, exercise. Uh, I do a lot of cardio. I do a lot of strength work, powerlifting uh, type stuff, CrossFit. Um, and then I have my first meal of the day. Because uh, for me, intermittent fasting really helps. It, it, when you digest, there's a lot of blood in your in your belly. It's not in your brain. It's not in your muscles. It's in your belly, um, and that can slow things down. Uh, so I have my first meal uh, after that workout, and then I'll have a nap. Because this is something that's people are starting to appreciate it. But the number one like success factor uh, for everything that you do is how well rested you are. Like there's just nothing that comes close. It's, I will take two hours, one hour extra of sleep over three hours extra work any day. Um, 
it's just uh, it's just magic for your for your productivity for your uh, performance in general on that it's very refreshing to hear someone like you say that i think because people still i think maybe it's changing a little bit but people often think oh sleeping you know it's lazy and all that sort of thing but no actually it's it's the best you know it's the best cognitive enhancer it's the best anything you want performance enhancer in the gym you know, extra sleep is is the sort of force multiplier, I believe. I think that might be a Tim Ferriss quote. That's certainly not an original, but sorry, carry on. I just think that's really fascinating. That, no, and, and the napping that you mentioned as well, just to kind of top up that, you know, rather than having three coffees, if you have a short nap, I don't want to, I'll let you explain. But um, yeah. There's there's a way to integrate those. Actually, one of my professors told me about the espresso nap where you, you have the, you drink the coffee and then you go, nap and it wakes you up and you have this double boost but but i still think you should sleep as much as possible so it's um you you touched on two two important things there right one is this um attitude towards sleep which is is it's just outdated right it's like you should be able to struggle through if you were you know if you really cared if you're a real professional you should be just grinding through it and you can do that of course and there is some element of respect to people that can do that but it's not you know I wouldn't call that wise, right? Because you're, you're just, yeah. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be kind of considered a luxury. It should be more of a sort of necessity, right? I, I would, and, and this is interesting as well because you know I'm assuming in your time in the military, you know that you had to deal with some sleep deprivation, and you've kind of seen the difference, you know, between Seb well rested and, and Seb exhausted, able to carry on. But yeah, I'd just be interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the German military back then, at least, was one of the few remaining in in the, in the in Europe, at least, that still did sleep deprivation as part of training. So it would be lights out at quarter past 11. Typically, you're, I mean, you're tired, so you're, you're out the 10 minutes later. And then uh, you get woken up at quarter past four. And, and so that's, I mean, it doesn't sound too crazy to have five and a half hours, six hours, whatever it is, five and a half hours. But um, but this is every day, right? Also on weekends. And that adds up very quickly. And you see some pretty hilarious stuff, right? I've seen people fall asleep while they're marching. I've seen people fall asleep while they're urinating. You know, I've seen people full on talk to people that aren't there. And um, and the, the thing, like, there's one time in, there's one one of the weeks uh, in boot camp, you have first aid training, right? You're, you're And it's theory. You're like, this is how you compress a wound. This is when a tourniquet, whatever. And uh, and you have the sergeants walking up and down the line because continuously because they'll wake someone up in the back row and then they'll go all the way up to the front row. By the time they're there, everybody's passed out again. So it's it's just powerful. It's very powerful. And it's um, that's the other thing. It's like even on its own terms, if you want to be a go getter, if who doesn't care, who just gets things done, who really performs, you should be. This should be like your number one thing. It shouldn't be something that you're, you know, look at me, I'm doing this without the sleep. Um, that's just silly. I mean, you can get so much more done yeah, uh, when it, you're well rested. Like driving with the handbrake on, right? You can still get there, but much more slowly and uh, much more wear and tear and, and, and all that sort exactly. of thing. And um, it's not just, I mean, it's not only your your um, brain power, right? It's also like it's obviously it's it's incredibly important for your physical health but it's also things like uh, like you look more attractive when you've slept well like you're happier right you have uh, higher uh, 
filter uh, higher pain tolerance socially so you don't snap at people like there's just every kind of benefit under the sun yeah absolutely yeah people i've seen that you know they look a lot younger after a few nights of, of sleep but you know but as you said it just underlines um the importance of it so what else in in terms of sort of routines and habits is there anything else you mentioned when we spoke earlier about meditation i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that yeah, so I had the great fortune of, of going to a um, silent meditation retreat, a Vipassana course, when I, was, when I was quite young, when I was 19. I went with my best friend, and it was a good thing I went with him because it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Like, it's way harder than boot camp, way harder than the PhD. Wow. Yeah, in terms of, like, actually how it feels while you're doing it. Uh, it might be different for different people, but for me, it was very, very, very tough Um if my best friend hadn't been there, I probably would have left. But um, but there, you know, the reason it's so intense, you go there, you can't talk to people, you can't even, you're not even supposed to look at people, you don't have your phone, you don't have pencil, like nothing. Um, and they, they say it's because you need about 100 hours of practice to feel the difference. And that's what you can do if you have 10 hours of practice per day and, and 10 days, and then there's no time for everything else. I, so... I did you did you find that sort of breakthrough after and was it at about 100 hours was was that yeah i mean you can sort of feel if you feel different almost immediately at first there's like this um resistance to it right like this is silly like what am i doing this is unnatural like i feel terrible um but then after a while you get over that you start to feel calmer more relaxed uh, there you start to take things seriously um but then that's very acute, right? That's in the moment. That's while you're doing it. And I think, uh, obviously, I didn't leave early, so I don't know what it would have been. But I, I'm, I think you need many, many hours of that before you feel it, uh, not acutely, but chronically, like uh, that, that affects days. And, uh, and there definitely, after the 10 days, I felt different. And I, was, I, I felt enough different that I wanted to continue doing it. So... You, they recommend that you sit and meditate for, for two hours a day. That's tough. Um, but I've tried to do like 40 minutes-ish uh, pretty much every day for the last 11 years or so. And it really, it really helps um, in a couple of ways. Like one thing is it gives you a bit of distance from, from emotions. So not, you know, that, that sounds maybe sounds strange, but what I mean is like if you, let's say you're sitting on a train uh, and you're going for like a seven hour journey and you're just bored, right? And you, you just feel like you want this to stop and you're trying to distract yourself. If you've sat for a hundred hours, like there, you know, firstly, it's the, your perspective on boring changes. But secondly, like the whole practice is that you learn that these feelings, whatever they are, beneficial, negative, are temporary and they will go away and and it doesn't help to react against them like you're just using up time and emotional effort that you could have used elsewhere so this is maybe a pretty banal example but i'm not bored on trains anymore right no that's a great example i think and and as you said being less reactive i i, I tried to do you know sam harris 10 minutes a day his his waking up app and um yeah i i think as you said getting that that insight from that kickstart essentially that you had with with the proper meditation meditation retreat of 100 hours um probably allows you you know that was another thing that set you up for success probably um 
and I, I don't want to sort of lead you uh, on this, but one of the other benefits that I've noticed a little bit, and I'm sure you've noticed a lot more, is, is this quality of training attention, right? Yes. Which, which you know, combined with sleep, for example, uh, I think it'd be more persuasive if, if you explain rather than I did. But um, no, I mean that's exactly it, right? It sort of relates to what I was saying before because you're, if you're bored, you're, you know, your attention, you're not in control of it. It's constantly focused on something negative that's annoying you. With, uh, with meditation, I mean, the practice consists in continually bringing your attention back to whatever it is, either the breath or in Vipassana, it's a, it's a part of the body. Uh, you, you focus on one part first and then the next and so on. Um, and so the, the whole game there is to, one, notice when your attention has wandered, because that's a separate skill, right? A lot of people will be very focused, but then they'll not realize that they're now focused on the wrong thing. Um, and, and, and so you learn to notice when you're focused on the wrong thing and, you, and to bring the attention back. And this is just really, really a crucial skill in life in general. I was going to say for me as an academic, but I think it's, it's important for everyone. Yeah. I think any, pretty much any walk of life requires attention. Uh, and, you know, I think anybody would benefit from being less reactive and, and more able to control their emotions you know in certain ways being more present for for example is another thing that i think you know people are more charismatic if you look like oh you're not really paying attention you know you're less engaging i think and that's um obviously another important skill so are there any other kind of habits any other routines that, that you'd include and i'd also like you to talk just and you, you mentioned it a little bit but about nutrition and they'll kind of segue onto the next topic, but, but your thoughts on nutrition and any other kind of within the overarching uh, habit routines that, that you'd like to mention. Definitely. I mean, so one thing that's um, that I've started doing recently and, and that I quite recommend uh, that I'm getting, I, f I feel it's benefiting me is um, getting early sunlight. So it, ideally, I mean, in the summer it's best because I'm awake early and I don't have to wait for it. And I just go outside and I have my coffee outside. Maybe I sit and meditate uh, outside a little bit. I think you, I mean, any amount is good, but I think you're looking for like 10, 15 minutes ideally. And what that does is it's act as a Zeitgeber, which is a term of art for uh, something that tells your brain what time it is. And, and that's important for setting your, your circadian rhythm, for setting your internal clock. Um, what, what doing that regularly does is it makes you alert at the right times in the morning and sleepy at the right times in the evening. So when you've had sunlight the, for the first time, your brain knows, okay, that's time X. And then, you know, 15 hours later, it's time, it's time to start winding down. And if that is later in the day, then also you end up being sleepy later in the day. So, so circling back to sleep, right? This helps with, with, with that, with nutrition. This is hugely important uh, for, for many reasons. I mean, uh, there's this uh, amazing uh, old Greek uh, philosophical thought experiment called the ship of Theseus, where um, there's a, you know, Theseus was this epic hero um, and his ship supposedly stood in the Athenian harbor for um, hundreds of years and then was, was supposed to be preserved because, you know, it was Theseus's ship and, and he was a hero. So... Let's honor, let's honor that, let's honor him. But then it started to decay, uh, right, over time, uh, as, as wooden ships do. And they would just continually add uh, new planks to it, new rope, new this, new that. Another thought experiment, which is interesting for another reason, uh, we won't go into that now, but the thought experiment goes like, 
at some point, every piece in the ship has been replaced. Um, so is that now still the ship? Uh, or is it a new ship? Or is it still the ship of Theseus? What is it? And then, then you're like, okay, well, it's still the same ship, most people would say. But then they, okay, what if all the original pieces have been taken and you'd build another ship with all the original pieces? Which one is now the ship? Of so that's, you know, that's fascinating. But the it's, point is... Fascinating. Yeah, it, it reminds me there there are several similar thought of, you know, can the same man go into the same river twice? And, okay. and um, maybe there's an analogy with the human body and cell turnover mm -hmm. and that sort of thing as well. You'd know more than I would, but um, very I mean, interesting. Yeah, that's that's it. Exactly. Right. So with um, so it turns out this process is happening as well with 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 food. Right. So, I mean, with ourselves. So there's there are some exceptions, but the great majority of our cells are replaced. And it happens at different rates, but it's something like every seven years, you know, substantially 90 plus percent of you has been, is new, right? Is new cells. And where do they come from? You know, they come from your food. So this is, is, is sort of like a high level thing of like how important it is. You literally are what you eat, right? Is what I'm getting at. But um, in terms of, there's also just lots and lots of studies on this, right? So there's really interesting stuff on in children because children are developing. It's even more important for them. But um, but the more sort of healthy food, where healthy is defined as in kids, you there's some controversy about the vegetarian diets, but but in general, healthy is defined as eating more plants um, and and nuts and mushrooms and and things like that. And uh, the more you know, the the more you have that, it's the the more the higher the IQ of the the more the IQ changes in the beneficial direction per year. And it's not it's not a small effect. It's it's big. It's um, I don't want to put you know myself on the line because I don't remember exactly, but it's comparable to the effect of like half a year of schooling per year or something like that. Wow, very significant then, yeah. Extremely significant. Now that's in kids. It's there's reason to think that effect is attenuated in in adults, but still it's there. Uh, I remember one study found that for every 200 grams of of plants that you eat uh, per day, you have six percent less chance of dying for any reason. Like this all cause wow. mortality. All cause yeah. mortality. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, so there's, there's like a, there's a health effect there, but it also, there's also a co cognitive effect. I mean, just to, uh, we all know what it feels like, or most of us will know what it feels like to have big fat steak dinner and, and huge desserts after. And, and this, this, the feeling that you have is like, you're not going to run a marathon. You're not going to write a book right after that, right? You're going to, you're going to lie on the couch pretty much. And, uh, and it's, it's just, um, at one level, it's just that, you know, some meals are harder to digest than others and it requires more blood. And that blood is not then going to help your muscles or your mind or your brain. But another thing is, is, is the longitude, like the, the health effects over time. And these things just really add up. Um, uh, also with, uh, with cognition, some foods are more conducive than others for things like angiogenesis and getting new, new, um, blood vessels to your brain for things like uh, neuroplasticities, like new synapses and so on. These are all impacted by lots and lots of things. And, and one of the big things is, uh, is, is nutrition. That's, that's really interesting. So, so very briefly, I mean, can you run us through a typical day? I, I appreciate it's important to have you know, variety in, in diet, but a, a typical day or, or two days about how, how you might eat, you, you kind of mentioned the timings, but yeah, could you, could you run me through that? Yeah, sure. So I have just two meals a day. Um, I have the, the lunch and the dinner. Um, and then I have a large lunch. There's also something there that it's easier to digest earlier in the day. Um, so 
So, uh, I mean, if you did eat breakfast, if you weren't fasting, it would be that you should eat the most of the, of the day's uh, calories in the morning and then the second most at lunch and the least at dinner. Uh, so, so I, I mean, right now I'm very lucky. I'm in, uh, I'm in one of the, I'm in St. Cross College in Oxford and we have just excellent, uh, uh, cafeteria and buffet. And so something typical that I would have is, it's like whole grain pasta with, um, with, uh, mixed veg, uh, sauce. And then there's a salad bar, uh, that I will load up from and then lots and lots of fruit and uh and a soup i mean but that's you know that's uh that's a real luxury i won't have that when i'm done here so i just try to um what's very simple is is to have some kind of carb base like whole grain uh base and then have uh some kind of sauce with it it can be very simple and then just lots and lots of, of vegetables and in my case i eat a lot of beans because uh, I'm, I'm vegetarian but i do a lot of um, power sports and you need protein for that you need fiber and there's nothing better uh, in terms of protein and fiber than, than beans, legumes uh, in general. Yeah, That's really interesting. And you're able to, you know, recover okay with that. Do you, ha- do you have a rough idea of your, you know, your sort of daily grams of protein, for example, and, and, and all that sort of thing? I used to keep track of it. Um, I don't anymore. It was, it's just too much effort. Um, I also found that for me, it, it tracks like my subjective, how I feel, um, tracks. You're quite- able to tell. After yeah. years of, and you're exactly. quite a big guy, so it's, but you're still able to, you know, recover and you've made, been able to retain all, all the muscle mass, for example. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I work out, um, once a day, I mean, at least six times a week. Uh, and then I, I have my own training program and I also do sports. I play uh, volleyball for the university, for example. Um, and I've never had more like faster recovery time than, than now when I pay most attention to my food. Um, I'd say I'm a better athlete than when I was 18. I'm 32 now. Um, so it should be going downhill, but you know, the training and the sleeping and the, and the food uh, makes a difference. Yeah. So, yeah. And you mentioned that the sort of the major levers there, you know, the training, the food, the, the sleep, um, but, and this will segue onto the next section, I suppose. But first off, in terms of nutritional supplements, what, what are your thoughts there? Are there any that you take? Are there any that you, that you value? And then we'll we'll kind of talk about you know in other forms of enhancement, all the things you've talked about could be construed as enhancement. But I'll, I'll let you talk about that. So first off, just a little bit about any nutritional supplements, and then we'll kind of segue onto enhancement uh, more broadly. Sure. Yeah. So um, nutritional supplements is a is a is an interesting area because it's largely unregulated from the consumer point of view. So like you can, I mean, you can sell anything, you can buy anything. There's no real tests. Uh, I mean, there are some, of course, but it's not like like drugs or not like nothing it should like, be. Yeah, yeah. And as you said, nothing like it should be, yeah. So even if I'm like, this thing is good or that thing is good, you might not, and you go and buy what you think is that, there's no telling um, that it is that. So, but what I can say is that um, there, and, and the other thing is like, there's not a lot of research on these things. Presumably for that reason, because you don't need it. Um, you can just have marketing instead. But there is, there is research on, on creatine. So creatine is considered uh, by consensus to be safe and effective, both for sports and also for, for cognition, uh, which. Yeah, I was going to, you explained lots of, lots of brain benefits, right? As well as the sort of obvious physical. Uh, exactly. 
I mean, because what it does is it helps you recycle. So the ATP is, is the energy molecule, right? And it's broken down into ADP. So ATP is adenosine triphosphate. It's broken down into adenosine diphosphate. And then there's a, a loose phosphate. And that releases energy, um, which you then use both for thinking, but also for moving. And what creatine does is it helps you recycle that uh, just a little bit, uh, just a few percent, but that's enough. Like that's that can be a big difference. So there, there's both good mechanistic. I mean, it makes sense as a mechanism, and and there is evidence that that it works uh, for both. So so that's I'm you know very happy to to go on record and say that works. There isn't anything else where I would say it's been shown to work to that like to where you can say scientifically uh, at least. So I looked into this. It's now maybe four or five years ago. There might be much more now. Um, there's a very interesting work, for example, on microdosing. Um, with with psychedelics um, that has been happening now and that I haven't I'm not uh, super familiar with because I looked into this uh, four or five years ago, but my colleagues say that's that's worthwhile science to look into. Um, but from what I gathered back then, um, there's really nothing except for creating where you can be sure. Yeah, there is evidence that you shouldn't be taking a lot of stuff. Especially multi multivitamins and stuff like that are associated with. Uh, I mean, it's it's complicated because it's these big epidemiological studies with lots of compounds. But there are, there is credible evidence that the multivitamins are are not good for the vast majority of people. Like, actually, can be harmful. Um, so, yeah, that's interesting. So, so it's only really creatine. <clears throat> Excuse me, that you're. Um... Yeah, because I mean the the whole. It's in the name, right? Supplement gives it away, right? Like you're, you're supplementing if you're, if you haven't covered your bases to begin with, right? Like you, you should be like you should, nutrition. If you eat like a variety of plants, and then and I'm not saying everybody has to be vegetarian. Eat whatever you want, but also eat plants, right? Also eat plants and legumes and fruits. And if you do that, um, you should have all your all your nutritional bases covered. Like it's it's quite rare that you would need anything extra yeah you don't you don't take any sort of omega-3 or any, are you exclusively vegetarian or uh, well i mean i'm i'm veget i've been vegetarian for 12 years but i eat um i guess i'm flexitarian i eat meats like once a month on average if i'm in a social situation where let's say you know somebody's cooked a big meal and uh, and they just forgot or or they ask me is it okay because i don't want to cook for 12 people and then cook something different for you and whatever and I'm not going to make a big fuss out of it because it's primarily for health reasons for me. I do see the environmental and the and the ethical reasons as well. I'm not denigrating those. I'm just saying for me uh, personally, it's it's health and one one cheat day is not going to uh, it's going to do less damage than than the social cost of of being a pain in the butt, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. And that social connection and and all those sort of persuasive reasons that you mentioned. Well, that, that's been a fascinating overview. One of the things, and we mentioned this earlier, but one of the ways I first became aware of your research was as it relates to enhancement, human enhancement, specifically cognitive enhancement. Now, all sorts of the things that you've mentioned, meditation, sleep, good nutrition, exercise these could all be construed as enhancements but leaving aside that that sort of conceptual type debate what are your thoughts on and you, you mentioned it earlier uh in your sort of introduction it, cognitive enhancement and 
the ethical implications, and, and also you know you, you're able to to comment authoritatively on the biological kind of implications as well. So I was wondering if you could kind of give us a sort of o- your overview of your thoughts on on cognitive enhancement specifically. Yeah, sure. So um, people understand cognitive enhancement in different ways. Uh, the way I see it is just anything that's been shown in at least two studies to um, to increase your performance on any any tests of brain power, neuropsychological tests, um, psychometric tests of any kind. Uh, so so there could be something like an IQ test, but it could also be something like um, there, there's you know components of cognition. It could be just attention. We mentioned earlier there's memory, obviously. There's executive function, which is like your planning abilities and so on. So so there's various tests for these. And, and for me, a cognitive enhancer is something that has been shown to improve um, performance on average in one of those things. So that is potentially very wide, right? You mentioned it's a, it's a great definition, though. It's a, it's a yeah, good definition, and I think it's important, as you said, to lead with the definition because, yeah, that's a very broad. Uh, it, people, people, it'll mean different things to different people. So, yeah, that's a good, good starting point. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, and it, I think it also f- helps put the the you know frame wide enough, right? Because exactly like you said, a lot of the things that I was mentioning earlier, these these came to me. Uh, I mean, I knew everybody knows sleep is important, whatever. But what people don't know how important it is. And, and for that, you need to read the literature. And it's really, you know, huge differences. Like with sleep, again, the difference from of having two, two hours less, like having six instead of eight, is similar to having had like three beers or something in terms of how it impairs your performance. Um, and, yeah, that, and I don't, that really quantifies it for people in a way that they can actually relate to. So, so that's useful. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I wouldn't. I mean, I, I don't know if I'd be doing this interview after three beers or you know doing anything super important. I mean, I obviously super important having fun with friends and whatnot. But, but it does put it in perspective. And and so there. Yeah. So so the way I I first got into this topic, uh, as mentioned, was with this drug called modafinil. There, my um, my supervisor uh, on the first PhD, um, Barbara Sahakian, is is a very well respected, excellent neuropsychopharmacologist, and she did many of the studies uh, testing uh, both modafinil, but also before then Ritalin and Adderall, and showing that that they you know that they help uh, that they impact these cognitive functions rigorously, and and she was interested in the ethics of it, right? So so. She, her and a bunch of colleagues had this uh, this commentary piece in in Science, um, which is like the the premier league of uh, of publications in, in Science, um, called Professor's Little Helper, and and they're like, we've informally figured out that a lot of people are using this new drug. Um, what is you know what are the ethics of it? Because uh, firstly. With ethics, a huge thing is, is of course, safety um, and efficacy, right? It's not ethical if it doesn't work or it hurts you, or at least if those things outweigh or to such an extent that they outweigh the benefits. But but there's lots of other things in there that are interesting from an ethical point of view. Let's say it is safe and effective. Uh, we figure that out. But it's on it's on the gray market. So like a lot of my senior colleagues, they will have, especially in bioethics, they'll know doctors, right? And they'll you know, be able to have something prescribed for them, not fully under the table. Like the, the symptoms are, you know, it's, it's an narcolepsy medication. So, so if you're like constantly extremely tired, you can, you don't have to lie all that much to get it. Right. Um, but you have to have a certain amount of social capital to do that. So, so an ethical issue is like, let's say it's safe and effective, but it's 
that's on the gray market who can you know who can access it there's a, a strong argument that especially if it's safe and effective we shouldn't allow it if not everyone can benefit equally from it we already have enough things like that with private tutors and better schools and worse schools and and so on although Although interestingly, the flip side of that then is that the effect is greater in people that need it the most. Yeah. So like people that already have all the advantages, they don't get much advantage from Modafinil, but people that have none of the advantages, they get quite a lot more. So there's, there's that. And then, um, there's questions about, is it natural? Is it unnatural? Does it, you know, there's coercion, like, Nobody's going to force you to take it directly, but if everybody else is taking it and sort of you tacit need to keep coercion, yeah, indirect coercion, exactly. You need to, to keep up, keep up with uh, the Joneses, and in this case, the academic Joneses, right? But, um, but yeah, so there were all these questions, and um, and my most of my thesis was looking at at that, and so um, for for what it's worth, my conclusion was that there is no morally relevant. Uh, difference between using modafinil and using other enhancements which are considered okay so for example a tutor um, you know it's problematic that that's you know family x can afford a tutor and family y can't but we wouldn't ban family x from using it right we try to arrange conditions such that family y can also benefit from it so there's people that seriously argue that uh, modafinil should be available just like coffee is um, in the university uh, and in school settings and so on um, so I looked at all that and, and, and my conclusion was that, uh, it should be, you know, it should be legalized. There should be, uh, there should be access to it. Um, there should be, you know, you should have some kind of education before you get it. Maybe you need to be 21 or something or 25 even when your brain's done, uh, done developing. And, um, and there should be certain safeguards, but, but there's no real good reason to, to ban this. Um, but then through that, like I got interested in, cognitive enhancement more generally, right? So it should be like the effect size of modafinil in particular is something like like 10%, um, which is not a lot in, in the absolute scheme of things, but for something as important as, as attention or memory, um, it's huge, right? It's the difference between a B Absolutely. and an A or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So it does work. There's also this interest, this somewhat of an aside, but there's also an interesting thing that a lot of the effect is on motivation. So it's not really that you're much better at memorizing or, or that you're much more concentrated, although those two things are obviously related, but your, your like bullshit tolerance increases massively, right? So the classic example is the air flight, the traffic controller who's staring at the screen for however long your shift is. And it's just the same thing. And there's maybe a dot and maybe there isn't. And, you know, mere mortals will, will give up very quickly unless they're, they're trained in it. Um, but modafinil will make that less uh, boring, right? So, so that's an um, interesting uh, point from, from how it works. That's a fascinating point as well, because then, you know, do you take it one step further and, and suggest, you know, air traffic controllers, brain surgeons doing long operations, you know, again, I don't, I don't want to lead you here, but, but should it be encouraged? Should it be, you know, how far, how far do we kind of go with that? I'd love to hear what you think on, you know, if someone was operating on, on you or on your mother, you know, you're going to want them to be as good as possible. Right. I mean, yeah, exactly. And, and so there, yeah, there it gets slightly nuanced because if it's everything is, if it's other things equal, then yes, for sure. But, but it, it, 
especially in, in an area like surgery where there's still a lot of this macho culture of like, oh, sleep, what is that? Like, how many hours did you work this week? My, my ex is a brain surgeon, so um, I have seen it. Um, but um, there's a lot of pressure to not sleep, basically, right? To, to, you have your long shifts and you go home, then you need to do your research. You also have audits um, Then you maybe want to have a social life and also do something fun. Depending on the surgeon, some would might <laughs> might want that. Um, but yeah, so so th what I'm getting at is ideally things should be such that that the doctors and the surgeons get to sleep in the first place, and then use this to be even better. Um, but there's always the risk, right? That that people, not only surgeons, but that anybody will be like, oh, with this I can sleep two hours less, right? And that's just dumb, right? For all the same reasons, like you, you, yes, you can do that. And maybe you could perform as well as, as if you'd had an, an hour of sleep more. But what's even better is to have all the sleep and then to have the bonus. Like the 10% on, on a hundred is a lot more than 10% on 50, right? Yeah. 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 And, and then it's almost if you, if you're lacking the sleep, it becomes more like a treatment and less like an enhancement. At exactly. It's an excellent point. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So um, this is, it's, it's so interesting. And especially, I think, People will think about enhancement and it, it brings up certain connotations. You know, uh, people will often use it in a sort of pejorative way, use it in a negative way. Oh, that's an enhancement where the, uh, and I would agree that the, the evidence between, you know, what are considered permissible and impermissible enhancements is pretty tenuous at best. So it, it's a, it's an interesting, um, way of way of thinking about things i think just just to kind of reframe it like that uh, i mean and definitely and it brings up a whole very interesting philosophy and theoretical medicine debate which um would take us into the reads but but is interesting to to just note is that medicine historically is is about treatment it's not about enhancement but it's not so straightforward what the difference is right like if you have uh if you have two kids one of them is just really short but there's no there's no like disorder, uh, whatever reason for it that you can find a physiological basis for then the, but the other is the same height, but has, you know, uh, abnormality on the, whichever chromosome and, and so on. Um, under the sort of theory of treatment and enhancements that's current in a lot of medicine, one of them should get uh, growth hormones and the other shouldn't. Uh, but that's not really, you know, that doesn't really make so much sense. Um, the way I look at it is more is more we want better things. If we know something is better, uh, we want more of that. Of course, whether something's still better depends on how much you have of it. So it's not always, you know, too much too much of a good thing is also a bad thing. But in general, um, things like cognition, I mean, it's just brain power is just associated with a longer life, with, with higher earnings, with um, purpose, like the subjective feeling of purpose, like just a lot of very good things. And so we want more of that, right? So it shouldn't be, in my opinion, like only people that have 99 IQ can use modafinil or, or people that have 101 can't. Uh, and, and as you said, when you put it like, it's, it's such an arbitrary, it's, you know, two, two IQ points probably wouldn't make that much difference. It's such an arbitrary distinction, right? Exactly. And I mean, um, that's now with around 100 being the, the average, right? But um, but there's real cases of this at the lower end, right? At around 70 or 60 historically was a cutoff for, um, for, you know, cognitive impairment or, or what was called uh, retardation back then. And, uh, and if you had below that point, 
you couldn't be executed, right? If you had committed a murder. Uh, so there are these, these cases where somebody has, you know, 70 or 71 uh, and they've gone, uh, and others have 69 and, and have not. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's, um, can be very consequential. Yeah, exactly. exactly. In that example, I mean, I could talk to you for for hours about this. You know, this is obviously something I've I've studied a lot um, too. So, I'm conscious of, of people uh, watching and listening. So, I don't want to kind of get too much into the weeds. But as you said, this raises so many fascinating ethical, legal you know, points that, that that we couldn't possibly cover here. But and and this might be a bit of a clumsy segue, but. I'd like to ask you about some of your recent work on ChatGPT, on these large language models. Now, <laughs> this is the segue. It could potentially be considered an enhancement in some ways. The use of ChatGPT to you know, clarify your thoughts or to generate a new idea, to brainstorm. So you recently, with some of your colleagues, published a fascinating paper about chat GPT and its potential implications and uses in academia, a sort of proof of concept type type paper. I was wondering if you could tell uh, everybody a little bit about that, because it's, it's fascinating stuff and incredibly timely, I think, given all the recent developments. So I'd love to hear about, about that. Yeah. So this is something that's just totally fascinated me. So, I mean, the way it's, I mean, we heard about there was some breakthrough in, in 2020, in 2019 and 2020 with GPT-2 and GPT-3. There was a little wave then. At least I forgot all about it. But then ChatGPT came out and, um, and it was just a game changer. I remember coming home to, uh, to the house here in Oxford that I share with, um, with my housemate, Brian, who is just this really, really warm, uh, very nice, very, very friendly guy, but also just this, this interdisciplinary genius that's, published like as if he was 20 years older and in all different fields a very good guy to, to talk to and i remember coming home and him just staring at his screen and being like seb did you have you seen this you know like what what are we going to do about creating essays or what are we going to do about writing uh, our own stuff um what can we do with this kind of and so we chatted for for a while and we had a, 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 a article on just sort of general ethics of um, and then through through that article we started thinking uh, about the applications uh, for us as academics but also for anybody that works with with text as a medium right and of course generative AI more broadly apart from language models will also be able to process um, you know uh, other modalities and even even uh, LLMs now can also be fed uh, images and sounds and so on uh, yeah that's very recent but um so what we were thinking is we tried to do that first article as like many, many other people did. We thought we were smart, but <laughs> we were like, let's do, write it with ChatGPT, right? And we'll put it in the author's list and everybody will be, or, or at the end of the article, we'd be like, this was generated with ChatGPT and everybody would be like, wow, it really works. Um, so we did a draft, the first draft with ChatGPT and, um, it was, you know, it was decent, but it was not not usable. It was not at the level that we would be able to use it. I mean, it would be an excellent high school essay, excellent first year undergraduate essay, but it wouldn't have been publishable uh, as an academic piece. So we we're like, do we just wait for this to to come, or, or how is it? At the time, everybody was talking about prompt engineering. Of course, prompt engineering is still a hot topic, and 
what for those that don't know prompt engineering is like how you interact with a language model makes a huge difference like you can phrase your request in different ways and one thing people when you first start you don't really realize is you need to be very detailed right you need to give a lot of context if i wanted to write uh, to help me write a paragraph in in a paper i'll i'll tell it you are you know you're an academic research assistant the topic is this and i'll give it this whole spiel uh, instead of just being like write a paragraph on x right and you get huge differences but there's other ways to to so no on that i was just going to say so so there's enormous skill in the input in order to generate a better output there's so people who will have concerns about oh well you know it'll do everything for you well well hang on as you said it so much relies on that that input exactly i mean for i mean that is the intuition but for those that think so like try it right like go try to try to write a, a publishable blog post uh, or something for your linkedin or your facebook that's um that you'd be proud of using it and you might get lucky but it's harder than it's harder than people think right um People might get, you know, the thing is this, the stable diffusion models came out before. So these ones with text to image generation, and they're very good, right? You can just literally put in a, a sentence and it comes out with a piece of art. Um, so people might have gotten the wrong idea that this is the same thing with language models. Of course, also the same thing goes for, for the, the, the visual models as well. You can, if you do it correctly with prompt engineer, you can get way better results, but, but all the more so with, with the text. Um, but all that's just to say, so we're thinking like, how can we, because we thought, you know, this is um, going to, this is improving quickly. This is going to have an impact. We as ethicists need to explore what can be done uh, so that we can comment on whether it should be done or, or not. And also just out of curiosity, right? Like um, there's a, it's just fascinating uh, that it can do what I do professionally and it can just do it automatically. Um, so what's the, what's the limit with this? So, so what we did is, is called fine tuning. And so fine tuning is like, you have this model that already exists and it's trained on whatever in the case of GPT series, it's trained on the entire internet pretty much, right? All the usable data. And, um, and that gives it this jack of all trades, uh, the f feature, right? Like it can just do a lot of things very well. Um, but it's not super expert in any one thing, right? Um, so if you want to do something specific, you can take the underlying model and you can present it with a new data set. These models are, they have, they have uh, a convoluted neural networks, which is very, very, uh, it's super um, technical, but, but the, the, there's just these layers of simulated neurons and the weights between them. Um, are, are adjusted based on the material it's presented and, and then how they get activated is then determinative of the output. And what fine tuning is, is you just take the last few layers. So these things have many, many layers of artificial neurons. You just take the last few layers and you retrain them on this new data set. And what, what that does is, is that it gives you this jack of all trades with, you know, a PhD in one thing, all right, or like additional training in one thing. And, uh, and this idea is, you know, that's old, that's been done since the start um but it has never been like people haven't really thought of doing this uh, with their own work apparently so so to me this was obvious uh, i don't remember exactly how i got onto it but i was like wait fine-tuning what if i just give it all the stuff i've ever written will it learn you know to write like me uh, to write in my style to to suggest the kind of arguments that i would um that i would and um and I was like, how can we do this, 
right? I couldn't find that this has been done. Uh, there, there was some work that looked at emulating poets and, and literary styles, um, but not on people's own work, right? They'd take like, I don't know, they'd take some some corpus of Shakespeare text and then they tried to generate a, a new play in the style of Shakespeare. But as far as I was aware, uh, still am aware, nobody's taking their own work and then because the beauty with taking your own work is that you have a lot less of the objections right style theft whatever which which we can get to in a moment but so so what we did is we took uh, i i'm a junior academic i have written some things but not that much um so i teamed up with my housemates the aforementioned brian and who was really got a voluminous output and then our um our boss uh, julian um Sabalescu. And they had like, they have hundreds and hundreds of articles. And so we took all the ones where we were first author, because if in, in, in bioethics and then biomedicine, if you're first author, it means that you've done most of the actual writing, right? The ideas might be from everyone, but the way it's expressed, like the legwork's typically done by the first author. And, um, and so that again means that you have less problems about, are, are you, you know, are you okay to use this material? So we took all the papers that they were first author on and we trained a model on my stuff, a model on Brian's stuff and one on Julian's stuff. And then we took the combined data set and, uh, and trained another model on that. And I, I have to um, give a shout out to Ven Suren, who did all the, one of the co-authors who, who did this work because this is tough, right? You go through the article and the, you have to take out section by section because you can't put in the whole article. It's too long for the, for the machine to, 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 to work on. Uh, you can with other language models, but we did this with GPT and you can't. And then you have to to uh, describe it. And, and so in the end, there's like a thousand and several hundreds of these sections and he went and did it by hand. So wow. thanks, it wouldn't have been possible without that help. A lot of legwork there, yeah. Definitely. So so we did that. And um, and then the thing is, so, so there had been one study that did something similar by the time we were doing this. So they took, there's a very famous uh, philosophy, uh, cognitive philosopher, philosophy of mind guy called Daniel Dennett. And, uh, and he's, he is just a living legend amongst philosophers. And so somebody um, did uh, talk to, to Dan and, and asked him, can we do this with your stuff? And try to see like the the way they did it was they got uh, DigiDan, they call the, the digital version. They got DigiDan to, uh, this is a paper by Schwitzgeber, in case anybody wants to look this up. Um, they uh, took it and they asked questions and then they took the answers and they gave it to the general public and also to uh, Dennett experts. And they found that people couldn't really distinguish them very well, um, which is a huge finding in and of itself. But the reason I'm talking about it at length is that this was a model that was available to us of how to do it. And they had left the, so to, to do the fine tuning, it's actually pretty simple, but you just need a data set where you have example inputs and example outputs. So example prompt and example completion. And and uh, for us, the completion was straightforward. That was the section of the text. That uh, but what is the corresponding input and how do you do it in a way that's not uh, doesn't take you forever, right? Uh, to go imagine going through a thousand times and writing by hand the description is tough, right? So. What we did, so, so they, the Schwitzgeber study, they left it blank and we tried that and, and we got some results, but we didn't get very far with it. I think we just need more, we needed more data for that method to work. So we thought, how, how, how else can we do it? So 
the beauty with academic uh, publishing is that you have a description already in the paper, right? It's your abstract and your title. And, and once we figured that out, it's very simple. You just take the, the title and abstract and you have some cookie cutter text that's the same for everyone. Like imagine you're a academic researcher, you're trying to write a paper. It should be as clear, concise and interesting as possible based on the following title and abstract. Write the section, write the introduction or write the section on, on X or whatever. So, uh, so we did that. Um, and then, um, we, we, we uploaded that to the OpenAI um, through the API. Uh, very simple, like five lines of code. I don't have a coding background. I figured it out quite easy. And, um, and they then do the magic, and you can then access this model that's trained on that. And this was surprisingly effective, right? So, so what you get is you get huge variation. Some things are incoherent. Some outputs are incoherent. Um, well, so first I should say the input, right? You come up with a title and an abstract of, of the next paper that you want to write. Yeah. You feed that in and you generate section by section. And, uh, and some of the stuff is terrible, but some of the stuff is, is one to one usable, right? Like, oh, you have to check the facts because all language models hallucinate. They make up stuff. They just predict the next word. So if they're not sure, I mean, it's not even that they're sure in the first place or not, right? It's just if they don't have, if there's not sufficient information for the next prediction to be accurate, it will, there'll still be a prediction and it will just be inaccurate. Um, so, but we found that you, you can just, the beauty is you can just refresh, right? You're, I don't like this one. Next one, next one. You do that five, five, ten times, you'll get something that's usable and then you fix the errors and you have your draft. Okay. So that's the proof of concept, right? And it's, it's pretty, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty, I was very surprised how good it can be, right? Uh, and it varies. Some topics is not good. Some topics is great, but, uh, and, and it depends like for, we are doing bioethics studies, right? So we only put in bioethics. It's different if we asked it to do like a chemistry study or something, it would probably be terrible. Um, but, but even within that there's variation, um, but so we're like, okay, this, this works. And the thing is, this is a GPT-3 model, right? So GPT-3 is from 2020. This in theory has been out there for anyone to, I don't know, maybe half my colleagues are already just generating papers and just never wrote about it. Um, and it's GPT-3, there's GPT-4 now. And ex yeah. Exactly. That's, that's the thing, right? So, so we're just waiting for GPT-4 to come out because GPT-4 compared to 3 has much better apparent reasoning, right? So, um, the, it's pretty large, the difference in how coherent the outputs are and how much sense it makes, how, how the red thread is developed throughout, right? Continuity. Uh, and and GPT-3 will make many more logic mistakes uh, and, and, and basic mistakes that GPT-4 won't. So just pointing out that this works surprisingly well with an older model, like a, a two times legacy model. There's 3.5, which is ChatGPT, or ChatGPT is a version of that. And then there's 4. So... Yeah, so this is this is fascinating. So I mean, so that was the. So no, I was just going to say it makes you think. What what would Chat Chat GPT twenty two be like, right? Oh if this God, is sorry. four. I mean, or three rather. You know, uh, we're at four twenty two or or even ten. You know, fascinating. Um, carry on, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so so then the the question is like the ethics of it, right? This works. Let's just say it works. Some colleagues will quibble. They'll say, okay, well. Just too many factual mistakes. It doesn't really work. My, my response to that is like, well, fix them, right? Like, and then, then the combined output is still much faster than what you would have done before. And it's, it's, you know, you've vetted it. So, so it should be all right. It should be as all right as it would have been if you'd done it yourself. Um, but, 
but what about the other ethics questions? So this is, this opens up just like a whole field of new possibilities. So, I mean, to take one example, like we, we don't just full, full disclosure, we don't use this. We do use this, uh, but we, we use it to brainstorm our articles and then we rewrite, we write everything ourselves, um, f for now. But, um, but, uh, let's say that you, let's say that you didn't, let's say you were going to use this actually. Right. And then let's say I was going to use it and, and I'm in this collaboration. Now we have these four models. It, it's, it seems there's questions still about me using my own model, but what about me using Brian's model or what about me using even the combined model? Because I'm like 6% or 8% of the training data. So even though I'm in there or my writings in there, is that, you know, is that sufficient for me to be able to use that without ethical issues? If it's different again, if I'm like on the same paper with the other two guys, then I'm drafting for everyone. That's, that's fine. More fine. Right. But what if I just use it for my own stuff? Um, and if you say that's okay, then what if about if I only did 1% or, or what about one of the other co-authors who, who helped write the paper, but none of their stuff was in the paper or, or what about uh, anybody else? Right. And we, we took stuff that we written ourselves, but nothing is preventing anybody from doing this with any text, right? Uh, you can go do the same stuff right now with the top hundred publications and then try to try to have your own fine tuned model with that. Um, so the possibilities of like delegating work and, and the new constellations of, of authorship is, is, is confusing and huge, right? So. We had some thoughts on that and we thought, you know, licensing agreements, uh, not necessarily legal ones, but like make, talk about the stuff before you do anything. Don't use stuff without consent. And these, these sort of pretty safe recommendations that most people would agree with. But then some of the co-authors we had on the, the first paper, um, they, this is, um, Sven Duhem and, and John Danaher, and they had this really cool previous work that they did, which was looking at credit and blame for, for AI assisted work. So if you intuitively, right, if, if I give you, um, an essay and I tell you, I wrote it myself, you'll give me X amount of credit for it. But if I tell you, I used GPT to write it, um, you'll give me X minus something, right? You'll give me less credit just intuitively because credit is at least partially related to effort, skill sacrifice, uh, these kind of, these kind of creativity, these kind of inputs that typically only humans, like historically only humans had. Um, so, so, so you're expecting that you get less credit if you use the element, but it doesn't work the other way around, right? Which is this sort of was, this was very interesting to me. So with blame, you, 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 I write the essay and let's say it's terrible. Let's say it undermines the next election or whatever. This is just full of mistakes, um, but it's very persuasive. And um, I'm equally responsible for that, whether I used ChatGPT or not, right? That's still on me. So this work that they, this is an idea they brought to the paper. It's, it's all theirs and credit to them. Um, they, they call this credit blame asymmetry. And this hadn't been discussed in the context of language models before. So, so then we're wondering, how does this interact with this personalized uh, this, this, uh, fine tuning on your own writings, right? Cause uh, I should mention with Brian, we did some work, uh, and with, 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 uh, 
other colleagues, we did uh, some empirical work and we find actually there is this, uh, if you ask people, Robin wrote a blog post, it's either good or bad, you know, beneficial or harmful for society. Uh, Robin used the, the language model or, or not. You find this, this credit blame asymmetry. Um, so people will, will have less credit, but same amount of blame. Um, but how does that then change when you have like a language model? You, yes, you're using the LLM, but it's your own LLM that's, you know, reflective of your own past effort and skill and sacrifice and creativity and all that that you put in. And there we find this is to me very surprising. We, what we was ex were expecting was that you get more, um, credit. And that's what we found, but, but it's, it's industry, it's not statistically significantly different from control. So, so you get as much credit for using your personalized model as you do from drafting it by hand. And in one of the four countries we did the replication study in, you actually get more credit in Singapore. Um, interesting. That, that interesting. has so many, yeah. Raises so many questions, right? May, yeah. That's wow. Exactly. So, so, so then, I mean, you can tell I'm quite excited about this because this just so leads to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this just leads to one next thing after the other, right? So like, um, what another, like another study we have, we have submitted is, um, when you, you know, when people become incapacitated because they're in a coma, they were in an accident, they're senile, um, or, or just very old, but, but not senile. Um, and their decision-making capacities are reduced for whatever reason you, and something happens to them, other people have to take decisions for them. Right. And that changes. It depends where you are, who that is, but in cultures that value individual autonomy, it's typically going to be the family or the, like the next of kin or some other designated, what's called surrogate decision maker. And they're supposed to give the answer that the person in question would have given if they were able to. Um, yes. But, yeah. Medical that's the, that's, principles. That's the, yeah, exactly. 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 Yeah. So it turns out that um, in non-obvious cases, like in cases where it's not very clear what the right thing to do is, most the most surrogate decision makers are are not much better than chance at at getting the right answer. So if you have, you have studies where you ask people, imagine you're in this situation, what would you choose? And then you have their next of kin or whoever their designated person would have been, or persons, and they are asked to to predict this, and it's like fifty eight percent accurate or something. It's not it's not very good. So and 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 it's it's also super stressful, right? Like it's not. An easy position to be in. And so this is like a known problem, uh, historically. And, and there was when big data first was a thing, people thought, well, look, maybe we can address this by taking, making a huge survey of people and, and we get some demographic information, age, gender, where you zip, like where you live, what you do, these kind of things in previous interactions with healthcare system. And then if we get the large enough number, and we get them to take a questionnaire, what would you do in this situation, that situation? We can build a, like a normal statistical model, uh, not, not an LLM-based one, but like a normal, normal um, either statistical or normal machine learning uh, model on that. And with that, they call it the, the patient preference predictor. Uh, this is uh, work by uh, Annette Reed and, and Dave Wendler at the NIH. And, and 
they, and, and others. And they, they proposed this already 15 years ago, 20, 15, 20 years ago. And, um, then it turns out that's more accurate, right? It's more accurate than, than surrogate decision makers, but it's not so straightforward that it's still a good thing to do because a lot of people will be like, wait, maybe it gets the right prediction, but does it get it the right way? Right? Like, is it, is it's just doing things that other people like me want. It's not respecting my personal choices. It's not the sort of approach that could do that. And it, then the yeah, is, yeah. it lacks the individuality, right? It's more a sort of aggregate data. Yeah, exactly. And so like there's diff divided opinions about how much of a problem that is. Um, some people will say, well, what matters is to get the right prediction, full stop. And other people will say, no, I mean, I would rather uh, not have the right prediction, but have, you know, the process respected. But um, whatever your position on that is, uh, our new project is like, what if you have this language model and you feed it, I mean, with consent and you can do certain things to to make the privacy issues less, like you can have it on a lo local, local system instead of uploading it to OpenAI or whatever. And you just feed it all your emails, all your social media posts. And, you know, in our case, the stuff that we've written uh, professionally, um, if people haven't done that, then maybe um, you can have people write stuff for the occasion, or you can have people come in and answer questions. You can have a consultation meeting with a doctor and you can just talk and it yeah, can be that's automatically transcribed. Yeah, hurdle to, to the concept, yeah. Exactly, and, and point being that you have this digital twin personalized language model of the person that's incapacitated and you then ask it um, what would, you know, what would, what would uh, the person in question want? Um, and so this is just hypothetical right now, but it's just, um, like we haven't run any pilot studies, but but this is just one example of like all the many many things you can do with uh, with this concept of personalizing language models. It's it's amazing. I mean, it's it's mind blowing, and, and as you said, it, it's going to require people like you to to do a lot of well thinking about about the ethical, and obviously you're a lawyer too. The the regulatory questions. Uh, uh, there are a lot of them and uh, they're, they're very important. So um, it's fascinating. And that's a fascinating insight as, as well. I mean, it, it raises all sorts of points that people may not initially think of. Exactly. And like one, one thing is like this interesting ethical questions around it, but like a, a, a direct recommendation for everyone is to like go and play around with this, right? Like it can do so much more than what you get out of your first couple of sessions, like read around, watch some YouTube videos, think about it and, and, and play with it. And it, you can, you'd be very surprised with, with what you can coax out of it. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I'm speculating here, but it's, you know, in, in 20 years time, being able to use things like these large language models, it, it'd be like being able to use a computer today. You know, it, it's going to be one of those things that's a fundamental skill to probably a lot of professional type you know, occupations and that sort of thing. So as you said, doubly, definitely go and go and have a play and um, yeah, uh, get more familiar with these things because they're, they're not going anywhere. So two final things, and I'm conscious of your time here. So one, I'd, I'd love to just kind of hear your thoughts on AI generally and, and whether you, because um, I appreciate some of this, that there's some definitional questions about, you know, machine learning and AI and all these sorts of things. But if we talk about AGI, artificial general intelligence, there seems to be a big split in in the tech community and, and in the sort of ethics regulatory community. Some people are very sort of sanguine about it and, and some people are very concerned 
about you know the implications of, of AGI and have even called for a moratorium on on AGI. They don't even like Chat GPT, which which is obviously you know quite quite some way from from real AGI. I, I was just wondering. What are your thoughts uh, on it uh, as an ethicist uh, and a regulatory you know, academic who works in this area and is clearly right at the cutting edge of research? I'd love to hear you know, your informed opinion. Yeah, so I think um, I, I should say that, that like, I don't have the background uh, technically in, in AI. Um, so, so to some extent, this is personal opinion. But, but um, Understood, but you do have the ethical and yes. regulatory So. More than most. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Um, so my view on it is this, it's important to discuss these existential threat uh, things. It, it really is. And, and I'm actually quite uh, positively surprised that um, individuals who run these large tech companies have themselves put so much attention on this. So I'd say it's good. It's a fear that's worth taking serious. Um, there's no theoretical reason why it can't happen. Um, but I also think that while it should be taken serious, um, there's a potential for the discussion to focus too much on this existential threat to the neglect of all the other issues around it. So, I mean, to take some very, very, um, uh, obvious examples or not uh, that's fishing for the right word here, but to take some examples, um, generate like, like training these programs has huge huge computational costs, which translates into huge environmental costs. We've heard a lot about biases. I mean, they're, mod they're trying to predict human speech, human text, and, and humans are biased. So you're going to, you know, to the extent that they succeed, you're going to get uh, bias. Um, those, are, those are two of the more discussed things. Even those are being overshadowed to some extent, at least in the wider public debate by the more existential thing. But then there's all kinds of like more detailed, more granular things. There's stuff like, look, this is being pursued mainly by private companies. Um, it's going to have a huge general impact. Like it's going to be, a, it's a general purpose technology. Um, is it wise for, you know, look at the railroad and what happened with that general purpose technology in private hands, right? You had very serious abuse of monopoly power. You had a very, you know, you had problems with in like electricity is another example like um electrifying the the rural areas uh, is not something that the private companies did right that took state action um so so there is there's an element there that's just not being discussed right look where is all this power going and and i'm not trying to talk about like class warfare or who should better whatever just just from a very pragmatic point of view right it would be good for the state to have its own uh, competitive offering uh, so that we're not, you know, so that there's more flexibility in who can access it under what conditions. That's one thing. There's also just things that I was just talking about with credit and authorship and who, you know, that's for academics. It's about, you know, the, the, the authorship and the citations and, and is that deserved or not, but more generally like copyright, IP, patent and so on. How does, how do, how do rights and interests in generated products, you know, how we should discuss that, not only by philosophers and, and lawyers, because especially lawyers are very, very in this one super maximalist IP protection bubble, but, but there should be wider discussion of, of like how this should, uh, how this should be handled. And there's stuff like how it's being used in education, right? Like the knee jerk reaction is college essay is dead. Um, 
and, and then problem like ban it. Oh, but how do we enforce that? But maybe, you know, if there was more focus on it, we'd be discussing potentially more uh, useful ways forward. Like how can we ha update our educational system so that the benefits of this, of this thing in education are, are facilitated and are, are um, you know, milked basically right yeah, and then help people utilize it exactly but in the good ways and then how do we prevent like it's more nuanced than ban or or allow right and uh there's there's many more sort of detailed uh ethical societal legal questions that should be um discussed much more than they are and so that's why i think like it's a mixed blessing with this focus on existential threat like it's worth taking seriously but it shouldn't be the whole conversation right yeah. I, I totally agree. And I, I think, as you said, very few people highlight a lot of the considerations that you've just mentioned. And that in some ways, they're, they're more pressing, um, given that, you know, AGI may, may be some time away. These, these things are happening now. Exactly. Um, exactly. And having the frameworks in place, uh, you know, fundamentally important to, to kind of govern what, what, what's likely to happen in, in potentially the near term. The last thing I'd like to ask you about, and I'm conscious of your time and you've been very generous with it, is so you are currently pursuing your second doctorate. So as a man with one doctorate, the thought of a second, you know, that's a brave man do, doing a second one. Anyway, so I, I'd love to hear a little bit about that and a little bit about what it's on and how it, it relates to a lot of the things we, we've talked about today. But yeah, if you could just sort of explain in your own words what, what the second doctorate is about and uh, where you are, you know, there's one of the things you're up to at the moment. Sure, yeah. So the, the, the topic of my thesis is the human right to science. And this is shorthand for the full formulation is the right to enjoy the benefits of the progress of science and its applications. And this is a, a right that's in the International Bill of Rights. So it's in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, and it's in the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. So when the Universal Declaration was drafted, a, a declaration uh, in, in legalese is a non-binding instrument, right? It's a, it's a, it's, you know, we're proclaiming values, but they don't bind us. It's not a treaty, right? And then a process simultaneous to that was made to turn these commitments into binding obligations under international law and proper treaties. And then that resulted in two covenants and, and the right to sciences and the one Covenant that's focused on economic, social, and, and cultural issues. So um, I was fascinated by this in, in for many reasons. One is that it's so clearly relevant to so much that's going on right now. I mean, it's so super, much of what we talked about. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, the more I think about it, the more relevant it is. So it, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And I mean, it's hard to think of something that has a bigger impact right now on on everybody's daily life than science and technology, right? Like even if you there's obvious things like like the TV and cars, and then there's less obvious things like global warming, and even less obvious things like who benefits from new discoveries, like the patent system we have now hasn't always been there. Uh, it's been much more the case uh, that it was easier to for, for society as a whole to benefit from advances um, in certain historical periods. Also, not always. It's you know the past is not is not always rosy. Um, but it definitely is the case that the policy towards uh, science and technology impacts everybody's life, their material well-being, their education, their what's possible, even the things that's possible for them to think and aspire to and to realize those those goals. All of that depends on science and technology in some in some uh, 
shape or form. So, so why is this neglected, right, to this extent? Uh, if you look at the, the human right to health, um, to enjoy the, I forget the phrasing, but to enjoy the maximal health that you can, um, there's like 20,000, 30,000 articles on this, academic articles, books, there's huge conferences, whatever. Um, when I first got into the right to science, I did what's, what's called a systematic review where you have certain search terms and you just rigorously try to find as much relevant material as you can. And uh, that was 2018 and updated in 2020. And there were 50 something, 60 articles. And in the updated one, there was like 80 ever, right? In the history of this right, which is 75 years, 80 years um, soon, 75 years. And um, I was like, that's interesting. Uh, it's rare in, in ethics and law that you get to do something original here. Like if you pay, publish one paper, you're already more than 1% of the entire literature. Um, that's a, that's crazy as well. Just just to me, yeah. As you said, one paper, yeah, that that's nuts. Yeah, right. I it's can't like think of another context. Yeah, instant impact, right? And there's like whole areas that are just have never been written on, right? The right to science and something like, uh, you know, you can read into that thing so many different things, right? Like, what's the benefit of science, right? Like, surely it's vaccines, it's it's computers. But what about like the knowledge from scientific? Does it also extend to like open access of, of publications? Um, what about evidence-based policy? Like we know that many policies are not based on evidence. They're based on political convenience, historical accidents, idiosyncrasies, factional power, these things. And um, but it's not always admitted <laughs> that it's like that. Uh, surely a benefit of scientific progress is is that policies are, are based on science where it's known, right? So, so there are these very interesting things you can try to fit under this framework. And the beautiful thing about working with the human rights framework is that there's then mechanisms to sort out competing interests and, and the extent to which um, you're... Yeah, there are already established mechanisms, as you said, yeah. Exactly. And so coming from ethics, this was very fascinating because you're one step closer to society, right? Like, so... Human rights law is legally binding. It's not enforced in the same way that domestic normal law is. I mean, here in the UK, there's a Human Rights Act and that's enforced properly, like through the courts, but in much of the rest of the world. And that's also, that's just because it's incorporated into domestic law. Like international law is not enforced in the same way always. So I'm not, you know, I'm not claiming that, you know, we can go and sue the government for a, for a, a policy that's not based on evidence right now. Uh, although I wish people would do it. So this thing would become more, uh, more talked about. It'd be great. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But but that's the sort of thing. So so this is like, where did this come from? Why is it neglected? And so my what 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 can we use it for? Right. Because um, in theory, you're one step closer to society to enforcing things to having things actually happen that are supposed to happen and not just talking about them. So um, then I started out thinking evidence based policy is what I was going to do for my thesis. But the the more I read into it, the more I was like wait, this is kind of a unique situation. We have, in general, with law, over time, it's supposed to develop, right? There's some controversy there, especially in America with the Constitution and originalism and so on. But generally, the thinking is, um, if words are used in a treaty that, that admit that the words themselves are the kind that can change in meaning over time, then it should be, it's, you know, you should um, interpret things based on the current co historical context and not the previous one. And that's the general thinking. And 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 but but in the right to science, 
this may be one of the few cases where it's different because like there's been very little like this has never been in a court it's only been in front of the UN expert committee that deals with these issues once and scholars as I mentioned are only slowly starting to to pay attention to it so in international law there's different things you can look at uh, to interpret uh, and you know the highest one is is what um, what a competent courts would have said or what the parties uh, to the treaty have themselves said and done about it but this stuff just doesn't exist for the right to science. So like the relative importance of the history of it is larger. So that that's why I started looking at the history. And uh, at first it was going to just be like a couple paragraphs, part of an introduction. But I was like, wait a minute, this is actually fascinating. Uh, they're talking about something different uh, than we're talking about now. And people haven't realized this. So so my thesis now is looking at the, the history uh, from like precursors before because it was in the American Declaration of the Rights and Duties of Man before. And interestingly, uh, FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, um, in his Four Freedoms speech, it makes the first mention of this, uh, that people should have a right to, to participate in the or share in the benefits of, of technological progress. And then in one of the drafts, it was changed to scientific progress. Um, and so I was like, what, what were they thinking back then? And, and I started looking at this. And, and the more I looked at it, the more I found that it was way broader back then what they were thinking so this is contentious like they're you know i'm the only one that's written on this so maybe other people will find mistakes in my reasoning but the way i understand it right now is that the original idea was that look like science and technology are impact this is around the second world war so we have the the atom bomb we have um the what's it called we have the, the munitions like industry during the war and um, we have before that we have electricity we have the, the whole industrial like the later part of the industrial revolution and it's just very clear that uh, a lot of like uh, improvements in everyday life material quality of life are technological and they're based on science um, so so it seems that the original idea was that these benefits should be broadly available. This is also the time period right after um, serious monopolies in the United States and, and trust busting and all that. So the idea is like these, these developments in technology and science are directly impacting people's lives for, for the better, but not everybody is able to afford it, is able to access it. So everybody should have, right? Because... It's not, although we should respect the people that make the inventions, they didn't get there on their own, right? They, they're standing on the shoulders of giants and they, they have funding and they have uh, whatever components they use that's from other people, whatever. So there's like an original fairness argument in there um, to basically spread, not only make sure that everybody has access to like a dishwasher and a car, but to some extent also that the general living standard, like the general quality of life, like money uh, should also be spread. So there's this redistributive element, uh, which is just not talked about today at all, but this is, is present in the, in the history. Then, then the other thing is, um, what is science, right? Like, uh, that's a tough question, but, but there's, in one sense, there is an answer in this context because historically science was, was like knowledge and, and it was any, any organized knowledge. It's only, in the last 150 years, and only in English, or primarily in English, that science has come to be associated with natural science, and physics, and chemistry. Before then, it was anything that might happen in a university, but also that people, serious people at home would do. And so any like like rigorous um, intellectual study, 
any attempt at getting to the truth uh, properly, right? And, uh, and that uh, sense of science is no longer the case in English, but it's still, that's what Wissenschaft in German um, is, means that. And, and, and the Nordic languages, Willenscape, is just, it's the same, it's the broad. And, and I started looking at this because in international law, it makes a difference which language you, like it's not, if it was a treaty internally to the UK, for example, it'd be clear that it's the English sense we're looking at. But if you have signatories from 170 odd states and the six official languages are, you know, Chinese, Russian, Arabic, French, Spanish, and English, and there's variation in those things, you can, you can use that in your argument. You can look at it. That matters. It turns out that, um, uh, again, this is my interpretation of it, but there's very good evidence that what was meant was this broader, uh, intellectual, um, efforts. Um, not just only- this Anglo sort of centric definition of science. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that makes a lot of difference in a lot of things because it, it broadens like the potential protection of this. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it, it makes it more inclusive, more wider. And it also makes sense of this is something I haven't mentioned yet, but just very briefly, like science is considered a cultural right in human rights law. And you're like, why is, what is culture and science? Like it doesn't really, it's not really the same it seems thing. It's like a disconnect. Prima then, facie. Yeah. Exactly. But then you look at the history and it turns out that there's also been a change in time uh, over time in the meaning of science and culture. I mean, culture in this case. So culture has different senses. And one of them is what we now talk about national culture of France, of England, or, or even like local uh, football culture or whatever. And this is, um, this is called the anthropological sense because it comes from anthropology where people would say, look, uh, previously it was thought there was just one culture. It's the European uh, one, and we actually know this is not uh, the case. Like people are different, and and we should respect that. And so, so this sense of culture looks at what distinguishes one group from another, what makes you know what's unique about one group of people. But historically, the there's another sense of culture, which is any any intellectual and creative effort. So, like what distinguishes humans from animals, not what distinguishes one human from another, but but humans from from other uh, beings and um and that makes sense so if you think of like culture just meaning you know it's the arts and literature but it's anything that's to do with creativity and intellectual effort it makes a lot of sense that that science is is part of that and then finally one one other thing from the history is scientific freedom right so in this human rights there is the wording i told you but then there's other uh, articles um like sub articles within the the article and one of them is um that states have an obligation to um protect the um freedom necessary for scientific and creative uh endeavor um and or creation i think is the word used um and and this was this was also interesting so we know like people talk about scientific freedom academic freedom um what can you say? Especially, it's it's a big thing in the culture wars in the in the states right now, and presumably, like also a little bit here. Although I haven't followed everywhere, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they're just to to keep it short and simple, but like they're originally they were much more ambitious. So if you look at the historical debates, it was like the purpose of science is and science broadly, right? Like all intellectual effort is to get a truth, and truth or knowledge, right? If you don't like truth, truth. I like truth. We should have truth. We should keep that. Um, and to, 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 
truth is important. Knowledge is important because it helps you become the kind of person you want to be, which is the sort of overall justification for human rights. It's like people should have the resources and the freedom to develop themselves, develop their personality uh, to the highest point feasible and, and desirable for them. Crucial for human flourishing and all that sort of, all those concepts. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And so the, the clear the clear to me reasoning uh, in, in, in these debates is that um, we need, we want to have a world in which people can become the kind of people they want. One crucial aspect of that is, is knowledge, truth, and creativity. And in order to have that, like to, to get that, to get more of this vital substance, you need freedom. You need this freedom. You need to let people try different methods. You need to allow people to make mistakes and get back up. And, uh, and this turns out to be like, this goes back all the way to the ancient Greeks, this idea that you need uh, freedom to say controversial things, to make mistakes and so on, and not be excommunicated because otherwise you don't get these serendipitous discoveries. You don't get these advances that are like the 20th time and that the previous 19 failed, right? Um, and that's sort of been lost now. So now we talk about, um, uh, now there's uh, participation in science and there's mission-driven science and there's all these ideas about what science needs to do and what's appropriate in, in the university and what's not. And this would have just been anathema to them, right? This would have just been back in the day. Even these, these are state representatives. These are high-level diplomats that are, that are drafting this. And, and they're like, no, science must be free. Otherwise, we don't get the benefits uh, and so on. And, and um, although there's another part of the right to science, which is participation, like we should be we should be able to contribute to science. We should be getting the education we need. There shouldn't be barriers to us just because we're women or from or we're not white or whatever. Uh, everybody should be equally able to to join science. Yes. But there's a trend to to think that participation means that the public should guide what the scientists do. And that's dangerous, right? Like it's, it's correct that there, there needs to be public consultation on major decisions, right? AI is a great example, but it's not like we shouldn't go uh, and, and dictate which methods are to be used and, you know, you can't research and this thing, right? Wouldn't really be in a position to authoritatively dictate which methods, right? Exactly. Uh, I mean, who's going to know better than the people conducting the actual research? I, I understand that. And it sounds, it sounds uncontroversial when we talk about it now, but that's the direction, right? Like a lot of stuff is going in that direction. Um, don't be, we can't trust the scientists. We need to tell them what to do. For sure. It's sort of anti-expert backlash. And yeah, absolutely. You're right. It, it, it's, uh, it shouldn't perhaps be as controversial as it, as it seems to be. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. so, so that's, yeah, that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at these three areas and how they change over time. And then I'm making the argument that. This was really well thought out back then. This was a huge part of, of the vision of how this human rights system as a whole would work. And then because of the need to phrase it very succinctly um, and because of the way that terms like science and culture have changed over, over the years, this message has been lost. And then a lot of people started picking this up 60 years later and, and did the best they could without knowing this broader context. And there's a lot of excellent work. I'm not saying that at all, but a lot of this history of this particular right is, is super relevant. And I think the, the way that it was thought of back then, also the way it's thought of now, but, but particularly the way it was thought of back then is really powerful framework for a lot of the things we've discussed now and in general for the interface between science and society. 
And it, it's especially interesting that the historical information, the historical perspective is incredibly insightful for, for the future. Uh, Ex- I mean, exactly. it, it's, it's a really kind of, uh, that's a lovely sort of symmetry in a way. Um, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's think, here's um, hoping for a full circle, you know? <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. It's, um, that's absolutely fascinating. And as you said, very consequential and incredibly relevant to, to all the things that we've talked about today, arguably. Uh, and clearly not studied uh, sufficiently. So we're grateful to you for, um, you know, sucking it up and, and, and going for a second doctorate and a second Viva and um, all that fun stuff. It's, um, you know, like I, I hear this from a few people, like, how could you do another one? A lot of people have, as I'm sure you know, had, had a lot of respect for the process the first time around. Let's put it that way. Um, but I'm like, look, actually, if you think about it, like you have freedom, right? Like it's different if you have to work in a lab, but I can do whatever I want, right? As long as I get my work done, I can choose my work. I can choose my hours of work, like my, my daily habits that we talked about. They don't work so well if I have to be in the office in the morning. Um, this, there's this huge freedom that I wish for more people to be able to have, right? Like, absolutely. And if, even the sort of scary, difficult processes, you know, challenging, like the Viber, for example, when else do you get the benefit of all these experts, you know, going through your work, giving you feedback and the, the sort of benefits you get from clarifying your work in defending it and all that sort of thing? As you said, there, there's, I'm half joking and, and, and half serious, I suppose. But um, it's great that you're able to kind of recognize all the advantages and, and not get too uh, stuck on the downsides. Definitely, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I've loved it. I can really just recommend, uh, I'm obviously biased, but like anybody thinking about going back to school uh, or just you don't have to go back to just studying more, um, learning some new fields, like do it. It's hugely rewarding, yeah. Absolutely, and uh, I'm sure <laughs> I don't want to feed you feed you lines, but probably good for your brain too. All that it's sort of- good, exactly. You use it or lose it. The more you use it, the the better it becomes. And you can use, you know, you can use uh, language models to help you learn stuff and things like that. So there, it's all coming together here. Well, Seb, I, I really appreciate. I, I'm conscious we've taken up a lot of your time, uh, and you're clearly a busy guy, but. Just very quickly, uh, is there anything you wish I'd asked? Is there anything, you know, we've had a very wide, convers- uh, wide ranging conversation, but is there anything I've neglected to ask that you'd hoped I'd ask? Or uh, Nothing that you've neglected. It just comes to mind that one thing I, I wanted to mention in response to the uh, cognitive enhancement um, conversation we had was um, one thing I didn't mention is like the most powerful effect uh, similar to sleep is is socializing. So a lot of people will think it's either or you can either have a happy life and and hang out with friends and and have a great time and play games and and whatever talk for hours or you can do good work and you have to choose happiness or success to put it very uh very gray uh, very black and white um but that's not the case right like it it, it the research shows yeah, they're not- the more Not mutually social, exclusive. Yeah. Exactly. In fact, it's like the more you have of the one, the more you have of the other, right? So mutually beneficial for sure. So it's uh, it's super important to to have this not only time off. That's also super important, but to have space in your time off with people that you love or that you could come to love in in platonic and and every sense of that word. 
um, and to make the most of it because it's it's you know it's big part of the meaning of life and it's a great part of your cognitive performance. Yeah, yeah I think that's um, that's a good place to, to to end to sort of segue all the way back to you know the the importance of of not just you know focusing on one area, just having that that balance and you know it's not necessarily uh, uh you don't you don't lose something is actually all you know all, all there to gain uh when you when you think about it in that holistic rounded way it's exactly i mean it's it's just super lucky in a way i think that the what i consider an optimal way to structure your day is also all these elements that a lot of people want to do right like there's some work but you only you can compress it into that 3 4 hours then you have time for sports, which is super good for you. You have time for all the sleep that you want and need. And you can still then um, learn new stuff and hang out with people in the evening. Right? That that does not does not detract from your progress, quite the opposite. Yeah. Exactly. And you're you're a very good living example, a very persuasive example of, of, of all the things you've just espoused there. That's well, Seb, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Is there any way you'd like to uh, direct people to to find out more about your work? We'll link to 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 you know your university biography, etc. But is there anything you kind of uh, want to point people in the direction of? Um, so, with the right to science stuff, um, a lot of the stuff's open access. There's a, a book I wrote actually with my with my mom. Um, so this is another area we didn't touch on. We should have covered this. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, please tell tell me the story of you know the the, the parents and the uh, yeah please. Yeah. So my um, I have the great great benefit of of growing up with very loving, very successful, uh, very smart academic parents. And um, you know when you hear that you think maybe oof, it's a mixed blessing because pressure and all that, but not at all. They were just super supportive. But my dad's. Um, a hardcore scientist. He's a he, he's he works in proteomics. Um, he is a director at the Max Planck Institute for Biochemistry, and my mother is a um, human rights lawyer. So she introduced me to the right to science. Her background's in physical education and English, actually, and then um, she studied American studies and went from there into law and culture, and now law, um, human rights law. I mean, and I have this amazing luck that I can work i have papers and, and and two books with my mom and then i have work in a completely different area ethics of proteomics with my dad and then also my best friends several of them are uh scientists or or um philosophers or uh, you know my very best friend that i know forever and uh, uh, he he's uh, a consultant but he studied philosophy with me and is now also here at Oxford part-time at the, at the ethics department. And so I have these collaborations with like all the people that are closest to me. And, and that's just fantastic. And I mean, I know that's very lucky, but there's always ways to find areas of connection um, that can be mutually beneficial uh, to everyone involved, but also in the sense that it deepens the relationship while also helping the work, right? Yeah, no question. I suppose some of the, it, it would help the work, you know, it's uh, that, and that socialization element as well is, um, yeah, that's, I think that's almost unique. I don't know anybody who, who's managed uh, all those collaborations. So um, it says a lot about you and, and the fact that people are, you know, willing and uh, keen to do that. That's, um, yeah, that, that, <laughs> that's a great compliment to you, I think. Yeah. And also to them. I mean, everyone I just mentioned is an amazing human being. So, yeah. Well, Seb, on that note, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been 
absolutely fascinating and, and just incredibly insightful, uh, I think. So Thanks thank for you having so me. much. This was a lot of fun. Good. I appreciate well, I'm glad it. To hear that. Hopefully we can do a round two sometime. Because, yeah, uh, how about that? Yeah, I can update you on everything. <laughs> that would be great. Well, all the best with the, with the second doctorate and uh, we'll speak soon. Sounds good. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Unfiltered Podcast. If you've got this far, I hope you won't mind if I ask you to leave a five-star review when you get the chance. We'd really appreciate it. And don't forget you can access all of our exclusive Unfiltered video interviews and features at unfilteredonline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. See you next time.